welcome to Till Dice Do Us Part podcast. I'm George. And I'm Elsa. A duo. A twosome. So many D6 were frightened to use it. <laughs> yeah, that strikes the right tone, doesn't it? <laughs> Thanks, George. So we are uh, we're a long-term couple. We've been together for oh, 16 years at the time of recording this. We live in Glasgow, Scotland, and we are really into nerdy hobbies, including role-playing games. Yeah, uh, we have both been playing role-playing games of various varieties since we were at university, and over the years we've played quite a variety of them. Short games and long games, fantasy, science fiction, superheroes, horror, comedy, the whole shebang. Crucially, we've hosted a regular weekly game at our house for the past oh, at least 15 years. So we've got quite a lot of experience of different kinds of games and we just wanted to share our experiences with you. So there'll be segments such as introduction to games, settings and systems that you may want to try. We'll be giving you tips on world building and character creation. Advice for games masters having problems in their games. Comparisons of how different games deal with important topics. And also just general advice and funny stories taken from the many games we've played over the years. And we'll come at those from different perspectives, of course. Yeah, so you've mostly GM'd the games and I've really, uh, I've only ever been a player. So sometimes we come at things, um, come at the same game and have a different conclusion or a different kind of enjoyment from it. And enjoyment is our key word. It's not going to be a super serious podcast. This isn't going to be an introspection into the soul of the auteur actor this is going to be quite daft yeah that seems about right (laughs) so the planned update schedule is about once a fortnight we're aiming for that um we'll do our best and so in that case we might as well move on to segment number one okay this is the section that we call elevator pitch In this section, we're going to introduce you guys to a role-playing game that might be new to you. We're going to talk about its setting, its rules, share some experiences that we have using the game, and hopefully let you guys know if this is a game that would be good for you. So, Elsa, what game are we talking about this time? So, this time I have chosen. It's probably one of the coolest settings I think I've ever played in, and it's made all the cooler by the fact that this is based on real historical events and real people. The game itself is called Night Witches and it's a World War II setting. Okay, right. I think it's pretty safe to say in this country in particular we can have slightly rose-tinted glasses on when talking about the Second World War. We tend to have this kind of who do you think you're kidding Mr Hitler outlook on the war that we won it single-handedly and we forget that we had friends and allies and their stories just aren't often told. And from the other side of the Anglosphere, the Americans, bless their hearts, can be known to consider it America and her backing dancers <laughs> fighting World War Two. But Night Witches isn't a game about either of those powers. No, no, it's about this pretty much forgotten chapter of the war that deserves so much more recognition. And just to sort of explain it to you, I want to sort of do a bit of scene setting. So if you can imagine, George, we're going to do some imagination. Okay, so imagine it's it's 1942. Okay. It's the Soviet Union and you, George, are a member of the Nazi Wehrmacht. Oh, I'm in the Wehrmacht. <laughs> so you, along with four million of your little goose-stepping chums, have been marching through Russia as part of Operation Barbarossa. 
Moscow at this point is pretty much on its knees. The Red Army is really oh, struggling. We have got them on the run, Hans. So, again, in this scene, it's the middle of the night. You're on watch. Yeah. There's no noise. Nothing on the radar. It's quiet time, Hans. You're feeling pretty confident. Yeah. Hans, do you want to see a picture of my girl? <laughs> I mean, you're the master race, George. This war is in the bag. And then overhead, you just hear this whoosh. And that's the only warning you get. And then, bam! Ah, Bombs! Hands. Things going up in flames! People running around screaming! No. Cats and dogs living together! Oh, my Liebchen! You just got Night Witched. <gasps> Die Nachtexen! <laughs> yeah, so the Night Witches, or again, the much cooler name, the Die Nachtexen, as the Germans called them. They were the 588th Night Bomber Regiment. So Russia's incredible and, quite frankly, terrifying female air squad. They were the brainchild of one Colonel Marina Raskova. So she was a Soviet pilot who was basically known as the sort of Russian Amelia Earhart. And she saw her chance when the Axis powers invaded that she was going to lobby Stalin for women to take on a more active role in the war. And I think it's pretty safe to say when she came up with this idea, she was pretty roundly scoffed at. Until Stalin turned around and went, why not? At this stage, and gave her the go-ahead. Battering hen. Formed three new air squads. Only one of them remained exclusively female. And by that I mean from the mechanics to the pilots, the engineers, the commanders. And that was the 588. So from all across Russia, she rounded up hundreds of women. Most of them students. Some of them were only 17 and put them through a really intense training course. Bear in mind, it takes most pilots years to learn how to fly. They had a few months. But by the end of June 1942, they were ready. Of course, at this point, the Russians, as you earlier alluded, weren't having the best time. So they were, it was pretty much anyone who had legs was getting called up, right? Pretty much at this stage. But the rest of the Air Force treated them as a joke. Nobody really thought that a bunch of little girls could fly planes. So they gave them the crap that was left over. All they had were some rickety old biplanes that were actually made out of plywood and oh, canvas. They were like World War One back catalogue planes, weren't they? Yeah, so it's... crop dusters, basically. These had no armour at all, no radios. Most of them did not have guns. They couldn't even carry parachutes. The cockpits were open, so they were completely exposed to the freezing cold temperatures. Even their uniforms and boots were hand-me-downs and often didn't fit and were made for male bodies. But despite the fact they had rubbish equipment, they had zero respect from their peers and were pretty much set up to fail, they proved to be absolutely deadly. And quite frankly, slightly mental. I mean, they're Russian women, so yeah. <laughs> so by the end of the war, they had flown about 30,000 bombing raids. They were so accurate. They were so feared, the Germans genuinely believed that the women had been given some sort of magic pills or injections that gave them night vision. But they were smart. They worked with what they had. Their tiny little planes were so light, they could take off and land anywhere, and they didn't show up on radar. Because they're not made of metal. Uh-huh. And because they were clever girls, like raptors, they would work together. So three of them would take off together, two of them would draw in the searchlights and enemy fire, and the third one again, under the cover of night, would fly in really low over the target, kill the engine and glide overhead silently before deploying the payload. So all the Germans would hear was whoosh. 
this sound like a witch's broom sweeping the sky, which gave them the nickname of the Night Witches. And these women took on this nickname with pride. By the end of the war, 23 of them had been awarded the title of Hero of the Soviet Union. Their bombing campaign continued right until the end of the war, and then they promptly got forgotten about. The male military personnel, the historians, just could not accept their achievements. They didn't want to believe it. They didn't write it down. And the stories of these, quite frankly, incredible, remarkable women have mostly been lost until now. So this historical setting gives us the premise for the game, Night Witches, in which you, the player character, take on the role of these natural-born Soviet airwomen. It's relatively new. It only came about five years or so ago. That's by a company called Bully Pulpit Games. It's the same company that made Fiasco and The Warren, which you might have heard of. They've got quite a few good games in their their back catalogue. Might want to talk about The Warren at some point in a future episode. Um, It's a great little game. And, and, you know, it's really cheap as well. It's like 20 quid will get you a hard copy of the book and the PDFs. And really all you need to play is a couple of D6 per player's. You can download printable versions of the character sheets from the maker's website. So that's bullypulpitgames.com. We'll put a link down um, on the social media. And that's you. Pretty much good to go. It's pretty much pick up and play. You just need this one book. What the system it uses as well is, uh, I believe it's Powered by the Apocalypse. Yes. So that's the system that first appeared in Apocalypse World. And it's been used by a whole bunch of other games, Dungeon World, Monster Hearts, Spirit of 77. The core engine is simply roll 2d6, add some bonuses, try and get as high as possible. 10 or more is a definite success. 6 or less is a failure. 7, 8 or 9 are kind of. And it's the kind of where a lot of the kind of complications in the game happen, where Mm. you have to choose to make sacrifices. And that is a big theme of the game. You are not you may be an elite squad but you do not have elite equipment or resources a lot of the time you've got to scrounge for what you can get and you know steal it if you can but it's this existence in the margins that gives rise to the real heart of the story because it's not just about the combat because you do there is combat and it's pretty brutal but the real sort of joy of the game comes from the in-between parts the camaraderie on the ground the relationships between the women. I mean, any war film or television show that you see doesn't have things exploding 24-7. The drive is these interpersonal relationships. Yeah, the game's kind of continuing that idea. Oh, absolutely. And there's plenty of scope here for a whole lot of exploration of things like gender politics. There's a lot of scope to include LGBT themes as well. In fact, it's pretty much encouraged, let's face it. The game does explicitly talk about that at the start and in the his section history it specifically talks about women and queer people in the context of 1940s soviet union and what unique challenges might face them and half the fun is again when you are backed into this corner where nobody believes in you how can you as a player and as a group shine as bright as you can even though you're in this incredibly dangerous situation that you might not come back from it's about being yourself as big and loud as proud as you possibly can and yeah it's just an incredible setting i mean what's it like from a gm's perspective i mean all the powered by apocalypse games are quite mechanically light the gm 
basically never rolls dice. My job is to adjudicate any bonuses you would receive, and if you make failures or compromises, I help set those. So I might say to you, okay, either you've missed the target, or you've hit the target, but the plane has taken damage, or you've missed the target and the plane is fine, but it's lost. Which of these bad things is the consequence for you? So it's fairly low prep in that regard. You don't have to worry about large amounts of stat block for German pilot number 17. And similarly, the character sheet printouts also include duty station printouts. That is a little piece of information on the particular locations that the 588 will go to during the war when they're based in Poland or they're based in Russia or they're based close to Germany and the sorts of missions they encounter there. So... As a GM, you mostly just need to worry about coming up with appropriate Eastern European names and practicing your terrible Russian accent. Yeah, you could have lots of fun doing your best Zoya the Destroyer impression and saying, da, because it's the only Russian word you know. Pretty much. Or, yes. Multicultural game. The other thing for me is that it's not just that you're a woman fighting World War II, you're a woman fighting World War II in Soviet Russia. And that brings with it some specific problems. Like the 588 has a polytruck. It has like a commissar. Also women. Thank you. Equal opportunities. But you have to worry about like the NKVD, the Russian Internal Affairs Secret Police. You have to worry about internal paranoia about fascists and capitalists and straddle this complicated line oh it's coming back to me yeah in our game our nkvd officer was pretty creepy i believe she had a bit of a thing for my character oh that's right svetlana lieutenant svetlana decided that if you knew what was good for you you would come to some sort of arrangement and the risk of obviously being outed in society where like the nazi germany the soviet union gave medals out for having babies you got a medal for having seven kids. Ouch. <laughs> That's all I've got to say about that. Ouch. So yeah, the this is a place which was only 10 or so years ago. Stalin has sent huge amounts of people to the gulags and Siberia and what have you for real or imagined political deviancy. So gender deviancy is not just a case of are we talking to this is life or death for these people. Yeah, and that's something that you need to bear in mind with this game, that there are some themes in it that are potentially uncomfortable. Sexual harassment is just a fact of life that these women had to deal with from their male counterparts, potentially from their superior officers. And that is something that might make you, the player, a little bit uncomfortable. Again, homosexuality, same-sex relationships are very much frowned upon. In this historical setting and some of the scenarios or language that might get used might make some people feel really quite uncomfortable and one of the good things about the game the book actually explicitly says look you know what if that's going to ruin the game for you just don't include it let's just have a world where everybody's fine with it and just don't include it it doesn't really damage the game that much but it's something to bear in mind um another thing to bear in mind is that the combat itself is really, really brutal. Every time you fly a mission, you have to understand you might not come back or your friend or your lover 
might not come back and that is something you just need to get your head around. In fact, it's actually built into the game. Right. There's no 80 hit point barbarian type things here. There's four levels of harm that can be suffered during a mission and level four harm is just dead. In addition, some moves mark you and marks can include things like witnessing the death of a comrade or advance or grow or speak truth to power or spread a vicious rumour. There are ways in which war changes you, but eventually you run out of all the marks apart from embrace death and face your final destiny. Getting all the way through the war unkillerated is going to be a bit of a challenge. So yeah, in that respect, it's again, I spoke about the rose-tinted glasses that we sometimes wear when talking about the Second World War. This game really shows the warts and all side of it. Sure, there's the, the glory, there's the excitement, there's the camaraderie, you know, but it also shows the mental impact of war really quite well. And you have to get on board with that and embrace it if you're going to play this game. So that's my, my only kind of caveat that it might not suit younger players and it might not suit first-time players. It's quite intense. And not not in a bad way, but just in a case of this is not exactly a beer and pretzels laugh-a-minute game. This is like watching All Quiet in the Western Front. This is like watching The Thin Red Line. This is a, This is not a war is fun game. But that's not to say you can't have fun with it. I mean, I have memories. We've played this game a few times now. And I have lots of memories of cracking up during it. I mean, some of it was absolutely hilarious. Part of the fun was that we played with, an, apart from myself, an all-male group. And that's something we should mention. This game lends itself better to smaller groups. I believe it recommended between three and five players, didn't it? Any bigger and it would just, you'd lose the focus of the characters. And you really need that intensity of the relationships. And yeah, initially our group were a little bit worried about playing female characters. Um, it proved to be a little bit unfounded. And they would turn to me and go, Elsa, you're a girl. How do I play a girl? I was like, well, you write a girl's name at the top of your character sheet. And then you just do whatever you want to do with her. But they're a mysterious race. We're really not. So mysterious. I mean, we're, we're just exactly like you, with the same hopes and dreams and all the rest. But it took a while to persuade them of this. But one of the, the, one of the joys, one of my favourite parts of the game that we played, I think the first one, was when our little group happened across a bunch of male airmen. And it was quite interesting to see the male players, the, the expression on their face as they realised that in a normal game, it was, oh, there's some dudes, let's go talk to them. But then they realise, oh God, oh God, it's boys. Oh no. One, they're a bit of a threat. And again, you know, there is that threat of sexual harassment, but also, oh God, the boys are here to spoil everything again. Was there not oh. a thing about there was like only enough parts to fix one regiment's planes and so there was a bit of squabbling about the boys thinking obviously it will go to the 217. Why would it Why would it go to the girls? Uh, and this is what you have to deal with and this is where you have to use your wits or as one of the male players found out you can use your sex appeal. I just said to him look why don't you just go and ask one of the male pilots? What do you mean? 
well, just, just ask him nicely, smile at him a little bit. He might just give it to you. What? And this is dawning realisation, like, oh my I'm god. I'm a woman, I have the power. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, watching this group go from initially like oh my goodness women are so scary it's so mysterious we don't know how to play them to oh my god have you any idea what that stupid boy just said they got into character really quickly but also it's apart from the gender politics it's really about the camaraderie between the women and just making do with what they've got i think i read uh i did a little bit of research for this there's a great history.com article i'll uh, i'll put a link on social media as well and it was saying they didn't have like the fancy pants equipment that the male members of the Air Force had. They just had like, you know, paper maps, pencils, compasses. Apparently, they would use the pencils as eyeliner because, okay, they looked like crap. Their planes were falling apart, but by God, they were fabulous. The Germans shoot me down. I'm still going to be glam. <laughs> I can relate. Are there any other moments that you can remember from the game that really stand out for you, George? Like you said, we played a couple of times, and on a separate occasion, we specifically played the training. We played the kind of boot camp mm-hmm. section. And I do recall the boot camp section included a NPC who died on mission. And again, it was because oh, of yeah. one of your choices. It was that you guys had failed the dice roll, and someone had to choose if we're going to graduate and like succeed at the mission. Something bad must happen. So poor old Agnieszka got hit by friendly fire. And that definitely helped stress the the brutal nature and, again, the sort of feeling of, like, sacrifice and, you know, we're in these terrible planes that have no protection. That's why this thing is happening. I mean, again, purely as a games master, it's a really easy game to run. When you hand the players the character sheets, they'll be able to make character in probably about 10 minutes even if you want to start a little deeper in the game rather than not start as new recruits advancing a character up is pretty quick yeah that's something i remember the character sheets themselves are very clearly laid out really self-explanatory you've even got a nice little picture of a plane on it and little medals on the back they've got different medals in the back bear player oh yeah there's I've five different sheets all named after a different bird raven sparrow hawk owl and pigeon they have very slightly different choices for advancement they reflect very slightly different archetypes they also have a very slightly different selection of medals on them uh, because medals is a stat in this game so like motley you get awarded a medal absolutely like motley you can get awarded many medals and what about the book itself? Again, I'm, I'm just a player. I'm a lowly player. I've not really read a huge amount of the book. What's it like to read? It's quite it's quite easy to read. It's very nice, uh, clearly laid out. There's a very good contents at index, so it's not difficult to find things in the middle of play. And those character sheets and reference sheets that are available in the extra PDF printout really make GMing this very simple. Would you recommend it to a newer GM or a more experienced GM? I'm not sure it's necessarily anybody's first game. That's partly because those kind of player decisions about having to choose what you do when things go wrong. There's a certain amount of communal narration. There's also some recommendation that when you move on from a duty station, you should consider swapping the GM. The GM becomes a pilot and one of the pilots, perhaps one has just died, becomes a GM. 
Now, that's not something we've ever done, and it's pretty easy to blank that section out if you prefer. But it is there to try and encourage a sort of, this is the story of the whole regiment. And maybe some people might be a little intimidated. Yeah, I appreciate that. But I do like that aspect is built into the game if you want it. That this is a story that we are telling together. That even if this story has been perhaps accidentally on purpose erased from history books, this is something that we're going to create together and make sure these people are remembered. So overall, just to sum up again, it's, it's an incredibly cool book. The actual potential for gameplay I, I get it. it. It's just one of the coolest settings I think I've ever played in. Maybe not, again, of somebody's first game, but if you have a little bit of experience with role-playing and you want to do something that's a little bit different, like maybe you're not interested in fantasy, maybe you're not interested in sci-fi settings, you want something a bit more real to get your teeth into, this is a really fantastic option. I think, yeah, I think people who are more interested in the kind of historical side of gaming might find this a good end to do is doing something other than American and British soldiers shoot Nazis number 275. And again, if you want to play a character that isn't your typical sort of Conan the Barbarian, you know, muscled in a loincloth, swinging an axe type character, there's so much depth and richness and potential for these characters. Um, we've only played, I think, maybe two or three times, but there's so much more we could do. I think it's more suited to maybe we've only ever played it as a one-off or like a two-parter i've wanted to play it as a longer campaign thing and i would be interested to see how that works but yes our experience is more in short bursts but those short bursts were very enjoyable oh yeah definitely well received in the group that's our elevator pitch for night witches it was written by jason morningstar which is a great name and it's published by bullypulpitgames.com i wouldn't really want to play conan the barbarian anyway I already mostly look like him. (laughs) (laughs) You do, dear. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Girls, do you find that all those basic dyes are too heavy, rough and smelly to use? Do they give your hands unsightly calluses or upset your delicate pH balance? You need She Dice. Dice for her. She Dice come in a variety of attractive colours, including rose, magenta, fuchsia, cerise, coral, peach, hot pink, baby pink, bubblegum pink and even lavender. We've replaced the big numbers with hearts because math is hard. Our team at Laboratoire Dicier have developed a unique design formula to perfectly complement your feminine rolling style. Here comes the science part. Yes, thank you, dear. All of our dice are made from high-quality organic materials that are kind to your skin and even keep you hydrated. These special polyhydric molecules ensure that you roll a suitable number of natural 20s so as not to appear too bossy. She dice give you the confidence to run, cycle and roll in white trousers, so treat yourself to the dice you deserve. She dice are available now from all good retailers at the bargain price of only 17% more than dice for men. She dice, dice for her. Side effects of she dice usage may include nausea, headaches, mood changes, weight gain, and fatal blood clots. Constant use may cause toxic shock syndrome. Be sure to ask your husband or male guardian's permission before trying she dice. Not a real product, but who can even tell? So this section is called Ask a GM. So 
George has been GMing for about 20 years, on and off, pretty much on. Pretty much on. <laughs> I mean, you've GMed a huge amount of games, um, different systems, different player groups. I've been part of most of them, but not all of them. So I think it's fair to say that you've got quite a lot of experience. You've hit a fair amount of problems over the years. You know, some stuff's gone well, stuff, some stuff hasn't gone as well. But basically, dear listener, if you have a problem and you can find him, perhaps you can hire a GM. If you're maybe an aspiring GM, just wanting to start out, you've got some questions, maybe a bit more experience, but you've hit on a particular problem, George is here to help you out. So since this is the first episode, we don't have anything in the mailbag, so... um. Begging your pardon, Lady Ilsa. Oh, hi, Mailer Demon. I'm sorry to interrupt you and your associates recording, but a message has just arrived from the magical realms made out for yourselves by a Brian Sejan. Oh, Brian. Uh, it's a question. How handy. Of course, if he is disrespectful to you, I will arrange the flensing. Thank you. You're so helpful. Milady. The other one. Thanks, Mailer Demon. Oh, God, we never should have moved from Talk Talk. And Brian asks, George, what do I do when my players cannot decide between the options that I have presented for them and just retreat into their shells and do nothing? It is really annoying. Please help. Well, Brian, players who refuse to commit to a course either in a option paralysis sort of way where there's multiple different options they won't pick, or in a more turtling way where they crawl back into their shells like a turtle and refuse to do anything, can be very frustrating for GM and for player. I'm thinking about, I'm sure you're thinking about this as well, George. It was one of the very first games I ever played with you. It was such a simple thing. Basically, We're playing Dungeons & Dragons 3.5 and our adventuring party came to a fork in the road. Would we go left? Would we go right? Those were the only options presented to us, but by God, if it didn't take us two hours to decide, George had basically torn all of his hair out and the game had got not fun. I mean, this was a long time ago. You were maybe not quite as experienced then, but how was that from your point of view? Yeah, so to tell us how long ago that was, it was a then current adventure from Dungeon Magazine 121, which came out in April 2005. Oh, I feel old. Yeah. It was an adventure called The Fiend's Embrace. And yeah, there was like a map, and the map said, here is the town you start at, here is the place you're going to get to for the dungeon. Here are two paths that have a couple of little cool named oddities on the way the mud fields the lost army ghoul bridge these things were just names there was a little bit of like you know background story and and rules attached to them but all you had were names and we sat there for two hours arguing over whether ghoul bridge was a bridge the ghouls crossed or a bridge the ghouls lived under maybe the ghouls will have cash and we can steal it lost army it's, it's the army how lost is the army? Is it that the army are there but lost? Is it that the army aren't there anymore because they got lost in the way? Like It went on forever. 
And yeah, I definitely was a little less experienced at pushing you along. But also, it was because every 10 minutes I thought, surely they've got it out of their system. Surely they're just going to decide we don't know where we're going. We might as well just pick a direction and be done with it. But no, there was an obsession with deciding the correct course. Yeah, I think that's really what this comes down to. It's when people obsess over making the correct decision, the one that is going to win them the game. And I think as well, it didn't help. We were quite an inexperienced party at that point. So we didn't necessarily realise that, oh, we could totally come back to this at a later date. Or, newsflash, it might not even matter. It might just be fluff. It's definitely an issue that, partly because people are used to more adversarial GMs or perhaps because they're used to the more adversarial experience in some computer games or what have you, they maybe assume when presented those two routes that going to Ghoul Bridge is like failing one of those quick time events in God of War 2 and Zeus is going to stab your eyes out. Whereas all it really is is you're going to get one random encounter on the way. Is it going to be ghouls at the bridge or is it going to be like a mud monster at the mud flats? That's it. You know, it's going to be the same kind of concept regardless it's just there for color so given that that encounter maybe didn't go great for for you and for the players if that scenario was to happen now all this time later and all this experience later how would you fix it how would you do that again and better i think as the gm you need to understand that to some extent pacing is dependent on you you're you're the narrator's voice you're the director choosing where to frame the camera work There is nothing wrong with letting the group have some discussion, but then eventually saying, you know, we've got to make a decision here and I'm not spending the rest of my evening sitting, looking at you, arguing over a map. And that might involve breaking character and that might involve saying, guys, this is not the masterfully complex decision you're making it out to be. I think as well it's about understanding your players and understanding the characters in the group because just naturally people respond differently to this sort of thing some people will get themselves really quite upset over the seemingly incorrect choice um and then again like who that person is in the game and who they are in real life can be different i mean i i freely admit i suffer from dreadful option paralysis in real life i mean oh do you remember when you were trying to paint the living room Oh god! Oh god! I I could not settle like on a colour. There's like swatches of paint splashed on the wall for about a month and a half because you couldn't decide what colour we were going to paint it. It was painful. Were they was not awful. like mostly different shades of like purple? Oh, I started off with green. Oh, that's right. I, I went through multiple shades of green before I decided I didn't like it. But anyway, that's just me. That's what I do in game. I'm just like get on with it. But other players will again obsess over the tiny little details. I think again, this can be about being protective and scared about your character's fate as well. I mentioned turtling earlier, that sort of I don't want to put myself in a dangerous situation, so I will step back, which in the real world is a completely reasonable response, but in a game can involve watching a very boring event happen. In our superhero game that we played, when it turned out that the president of America was a super secret super villain imagine that imagine leader of the free world being a villain gasp and when that was revealed i remember one of the players in particular was a real chore to get him to do anything there was a real attitude that came from him of well he's the president of america he vastly outstrips me in power and wealth he's clearly smarter than me i can do nothing 
And so rather than make the wrong choice, I will just do nothing and sit back. And that led to a good 20 minutes of just kind of sitting around being, wow, this is the most boring comic ever. If Batman and Superman just sit in a, <laughs> just sit in a room going, Lex Luthor's a bit big, mate. We should, uh, mm, yeah. So do you think this is where the GM does have to kind of step in and take charge after a certain point? To the extent. I mean, you can try and instill in your players an attitude of it's okay if things go wrong for your character. But depending on your game, it could be these are completely founded concerns that if we get into a fight that's too powerful for us, we will die. If we're playing Pendragon or Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, for example, those characters are a lot less sturdy than Dungeons and Dragons. Getting into a fight two levels above you in D&D is usually not that bad. But getting into a fight outside of your power level in some other games could be a death sentence. I think you need to explain to them as best you can whether that is or isn't the case. And yeah, you as a GM do need to kind of corral them eventually. Possibly force a kind of out-of-character vote. You might just need to say, guys, you've had 20 minutes, you've talked about it. Nothing new is coming. I think you're better off just showing a show of hands or of all else fails, rolling a dice and picking a choice. And adding your GM perspective of you can afford to take a risk here. The danger might not be as big as you think. Yeah, I think as a player, that's really crucial. It's to have that little piece of information that can help you to make up your mind. And also, sometimes I think it's good if you can have a little bit more context. Like, for example, the original scenario where you have a fork in the road, a little bit more information of what was lying at either end could have really helped. If you have skills that are appropriate in your game, you might ask somebody who has uh, like nature or tracking skill to make dice rolls to say, well, what kind of animals do you suspect are in that area or what tracks do you see? Somebody with history or magic skills might be able to tell you more about the ghoul bridge. There's ways that you can get additional information to the players if they're struggling, even if that is as mundane as somebody with some kind of geography or nature skill telling them there is no animals native to this environment that are so dangerous that which route you pick matters. Yeah, and especially for an inexperienced group where they might not think of that option on their own, it can help if the GM can just drop a little friendly suggestion. Like, do you want to give me a, a nature roll? Of course, especially with beginning players, but with everyone. Player knowledge and character knowledge is not the same thing. You shouldn't expect the player of a ranger to be able to carry out actual field track in real life any more than you should expect the player of Thognar the Barbarian to be able to lift the fridge over his head halfway through the session. All right, so that's all good advice. Thank you very much, George. And I Thank hope... you, Brian. Yes, thank you, Brian, for sending that in. I hope that answers your question. Which is real. Which is real, and obviously Brian is a real person. He's... Yep. Yes, he's real in our hearts. But obviously, we'd love to hear from you. If you have got any questions that you would like to ask a GM, please let us know. Even if you're not real. Especially if you're not real. All right, that's the end of this episode. We'll be back in two weeks with more nerdity for your ears. We'd really like to hear what you made of this episode. So you can send in your questions for Ask a GM. You can send us suggestions for games you'd like us to review or any other comments to tilldicepodcast at gmail.com. 
We're also on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Tilt Dice Podcast. So please give us a follow. Big thanks to the lovely Neil Slorrance for creating our logo. You can find him at Art by Neil Slorrance. Our theme tune is Funny Adventures by Winnie the Mook. And additional music was Glitter Blast by Kevin MacLeod. Those are both used under a Creative Commons attribution license. We'll see you all next time. Bye. Bye.